Because I would always get approached by like tech bros who were like, I've got a novel in me. I've just got to, you know, quit my job and go move to a cabin and I'll be able to write the great American novel. And I wanted to be like, I wrote my last novel with a newborn sitting on the toilet half the time. Yeah. If you really want to be a novelist, you're going to write. You don't need a cabin in the woods. That must be nice. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm sitting down with novelist, journalist, and podcaster Joe Piazza. Joe has published work in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and before that, she was sitting down with celebrities as a gossip columnist for the New York Daily News. I waddle into this very fancy club, end up talking to this guy for most of the night, who was really, really interesting. The next day, I tell my boss, and my boss was like, was it this guy? And I was like, yeah, it was that guy. And he's like, so that's Jay-Z. Over the past seven years, Joe has published seven books. She's written everything from tech satire to political novels to real-life accounts of Catholic nuns. Nuns were the first feminists in this country. They started universities. They ran hospitals. But nobody thought about them as feminists because no one really thought about them as women. Joe is also the host and creator of Committed, a top-ranking podcast that follows different marriages around the world. Every movie ever ends with the engagement or the wedding and doesn't show a marriage. What does a marriage look like? And so I wanted to tell those stories. The story of the storyteller, Joe Piazza, now on Philly Who. Just a heads up, there is cursing in this episode. Joe Piazza is a writer. She writes a lot. She's cranked out seven books in seven years, and the latest, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, was recently optioned to be an Amazon original TV series. On top of that, her podcast, Committed, just completed season two and will debut season three this fall. And she'll even still occasionally appear in outlets like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal because why not? And while her whole life she knew she wanted to be a writer, there was a moment where she started down a different path. So I went to Penn and, you know, when you go to Penn, they allow you to major in anything, but everyone becomes a banker uh-huh. or a consultant. Right. I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to go be an investment. I'll move to New York and be an investment banker like all of my friends are doing. Remember, I had an interview with Enron. It was like right before the whole Enron scandal. It was like exactly what you thought guys from Enron would look like. Mm. Like big, fat Texans and like... (laughs) Greasy hair. Greasy hair, like slicked back hair and like suits with red ties, just like drawling at you and then staring at your boobs. But there was a sign up in the Daily Pennsylvania office that the New York Times was looking for an intern. It's so old school. Like a sign on the bulletin board that said New York Times wants an intern in their Trenton Bureau and with a phone number on it. So I called it and then 9-11 happened. And so they, they were busy and I just kept calling and then I just kept showing up at their office. You would go to Trenton. My family's from Yardley, so it's right across the bridge from Trenton. I had a really, I don't even remember, I must have had a really light class load or I must have just stopped going to classes (laughs) Um, because I was just going to Trenton all the time. Right. And eventually they're like, you're not going to leave, are you? I'm like, no. And they let me stay. And I was their intern for the year. And then I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to be a journalist. What was it that drew you to writing? I'd 
always been a writer. I mean, my dad was a journalist to put himself through law school. And I think he seemed to have a very deep sense of regret that he did not continue in journalism and that he kind of sold out and went to law school and then was a failed lawyer. Did you recognize that you were also on that path because you were headed to being a banker? <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow, I guess. But at the same time, when all of your friends are doing something and the pull of New York and the pull of like this really fun life, making good money as an investment banker in New York is there. You're like, I guess that's what I'm going to do. That's what everyone else is doing. And I didn't really see a career as a journalist until I started hanging out with these journalists from the New York Times. They kept sending me out on assignments and I was terrible at some things because I didn't. Penn is great because the DP is essentially a journalism major without getting a journalism major. And the Daily Pennsylvanian is the best college newspaper in the country, I think. It's so professional that at the time, if you were the editor, you essentially did not take classes that semester because it was a full-time job. I really loved it. And so that was right around when the recession was happening. There was a really shitty economy when I graduated in 2002. So when they were handing out jobs like candy the year before, I think things had kind of started to slow down a little bit. So with virtually no jobs available, Joe applied to Columbia for grad school. In order to get in, she had to pass an entrance exam. And the guy proctoring the test was the dean of admissions. And after I handed my test, he's like, oh, he's like, is your dad John Piazza? And I was like, yeah, he is. It's so funny. You're in New York. Like, how do you know my dad? And so, and that was it. The guy didn't say anything else. And I called my dad and he's like, oh shit. He's like, you're not going to get into Columbia. I'm sorry. And I'm like, what'd you do? Like, why, why do you keep, why are you fucking up my life? And he's like, he was the roommate of like my dad's best friend. And they just bullied the shit out of this guy <laughs> who happens to be like one of the deans of admissions at Columbia Journalism School. And I'm like, thanks, dad. Yeah, Th seriously, thanks for ruining my life. <laughs> and I guess that, I guess this man had a big, big heart. Yeah. And he was like, it's OK. But you went to Columbia. But I went to Columbia. I went to Columbia. And then I got this job at the New York Daily News. I wanted to keep working at the Times. And at the time, the Times was like, you know, you need to go to a small town newspaper. You need to leave and like cover like small stories and then medium sized stories and bigger stories and then go to a smaller city and then you can come back. It's not as much like that anymore. The path is very different. But I mean, this was pre the Internet taking over news. Yeah, I guess it's so the Internet that changed that because it's the Internet that, that changed ago. that because you could go from being. Now you can go from being like a blogger who is a specialist in something to like being a reporter. But like this was like very much the track of like small town newspaper to big newspaper. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to stay in New York. And the only job that I could find in New York was as a gossip columnist at the New York Daily News. And I didn't know anything about celebrities. I feel very, very blessed that I got to work at the New York Daily News in the heyday of like tabloid journalism like when we were still competing against the new york post every single day when like we lived and died by the cover story before news was breaking every 15 minutes on the internet right like it was still the like tabloid wars time and it was a really special time those two years before the internet kind of ate everything so i get this job and i was going to columbia and getting my master's in journalism and then also working as a gossip columnist at the new york daily news which is a really hard job if you take it seriously. And I knew nothing about celebrities. So I had to teach myself everything about celebrities, essentially. But I think that's the best position to be in and cover entertainment and cover celebrities. To is not, to to not be a, know no, anything? To not to be a giant star fucker. Right. Yeah. 
Because there are a lot of people that are in the entertainment journalist business that adore celebrities. Gotcha. I always picture it when I see, because I don't, I don't read too much gossip stuff. And when I see that, I think that the only people who consume that are what? Star fuckers, right? Star fuckers. So when you're not a star fucker, do you even care about what you're writing about? Like, Well, this was also a different time. So the gossip pages of the New York Daily News were essentially about covering power. And so it was covering celebrities, high profile business people, restaurateurs, things like that. I mean, you were covering and you were covering a lot of stories that did end up being on the front page of the newspapers. But you were also covering celebrities. This is also pre Us Weekly. Your only competition was People Magazine and Entertainment Tonight. And then the New York Post and the New York Daily News. And that's really it. So I get sent out to Puff Daddy's birthday party. And I like, you know, waddle into this very fancy club called Marquee wearing like a polo shirt, like little skirt and end up talking to this guy for most of the night who was really, really interesting. The next day I tell my boss and my boss was like, was it this guy? And I was like, yeah, it was that guy. And he's like, so that's Jay-Z. <laughs> so you were talking to him. I was talking to Jay-Z know. like, oh, no, no. Was, I mean, we were just, we were just, we were shooting the shit. We were talking about politics. We were talking about like, I was an economics major at Penn. So my boss was like, okay, well, did you take notes? And I'm like, no. I'm like, I thought, you know, we were just having a, having a conversation. And he's like, I should fire you. <laughs> I'm curious though, would he would have engaged with you as much if you had been making a big deal out of it? Probably not, but it was also... I can't say enough how much it was a different time because it was pre-internet gossip, because it was pre-glossy magazine gossip. We had access. We yeah, had so access that's not the to, case anymore? Like, no, what's the difference? No, We had access to every movie premiere. We had access to every party. The celebrities would sit down and talk to us a lot of the times. And now reporters, and especially because everyone's a reporter, because everyone has a cell phone, everyone can take a video. People are a lot more guarded. No one was guarded. People were constantly getting drunk around us, constantly doing drugs, constantly offering us drugs. And then, you know, Us Weekly comes along, followed quickly by Star, In Touch, Life and Style, OK, Gawker, TMZ, Perez Hilton. And, you know, the access starts to become more and more limited. And also gossip got a lot meaner is the thing. Is that why you left sort of writing about gossip? Or was it just that your career was sort of taken away from it? No, I mean, I just, I got kind of burnt out on it. I was covering the 2008 presidential campaign and Britney Spears melting down, being flown all over the country by the newspaper. The newspaper also had a really big budget at this point. Yeah. I was getting maybe four hours of sleep a night, filing three or four stories a day. And I was exhausted. And it was around this time that I started getting my master's in religious studies at NYU because I was like, that's a nice palate cleanser. Yeah, talk about an opposite To learn thing. about it. Let's learn about Islam. I focused on Islamic studies in the religious studies department of NYU. The Daily News was paying for us to take classes and to take classes in anything. And I did. And it was. It was this wonderful palate cleanser from from Britney Spears and from covering a really nasty campaign in 2008. I mean, and I kind of Jerry Maguire'd my way out of the office. I just stood up and I'm like, I'm not going to take it anymore. (laughs) Um, And we were a country that was that needed to cover religion constantly, especially in a post 9-11 world. And I was reading a lot of stories where someone didn't know the difference between a Shia and Sunni Muslim. And that someone was the person that was writing about it? That was writing the story. And I was like, someone needs to do a deep dive into this and then come back with a certain level of expertise. What I didn't realize is that there are very few openings for religion reporters. 
but I did end up using my master's to write a book. Right. So now before that, you wrote a book, Celebrity Inc., How Famous People Make Money. Make Money. Make Money. Now, this was your first book, correct? Mm -hmm. So going into writing a book for the first time, how was that different from what you had been doing, which was writing more sort of columns? Oh, it was hell. It was really hell. Writing my first book was the hardest thing I've ever done. Wow. Because I didn't know how to do it. And it seemed wildly daunting. And I was so used to writing 500 word stories. I wrote Celebrity Inc. 10 years ago. I could re and Celebrity Inc. is still the only book really written about how celebrities make their money in terms of and like the power and influence that celebrities have over us. And it still gets quoted like once every two weeks. So the second book you drew upon your master's degree. So the interesting story behind that is that everyone wants me to write this tell all. And I'm like, I want to write a really smart economics book that's like Harvard Harvard Business School case studies, but about celebrities. And no one wanted to publish it. I shopped it around and I shopped it around. And finally, Jane Friedman at Open Road took a chance on me and wanted to publish it. It was talking about how Kim Kardashian had improved on Paris Hilton's business model and how Kim Kardashian was going to be even bigger than Paris Hilton. But at the end of the chapter, I said the only way Kim Kardashian's star can survive is if she marries someone more famous than her and starts having babies. And then I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm How do you like feel psychic. when you look back at that and you're just like, mic drop, I, I called say, it. <laughs> well, I say it all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. yeah. Then I was like, huh. I got through this terrible slog that was writing my first book. Like it, it really was no, so was it, hard. It was just the process just of the process, book writing. The process. I mean, difficult. the process of book writing sucks. And I don't think that writers say enough. I think writing, especially book writing and magazine writing, is very romanticized in popular culture. And like, there's nothing like beautiful and romantic and like flippy flirty fun about working in magazines. But, you know, if you watch enough Kate Hudson and Jennifer Garner movies, then you think it's the perfect job to have as a young woman in New York. And the same with novel writing. Like a novelist's life is always portrayed as, you know, kind of romantic and dashing and beautiful. And writing is really fucking hard. It's the hardest thing that I do on a daily basis is forcing myself to sit down and put words on a page. And and why is it so hard? Because it's lonely, I think. Having done this for so long, how do you manage that now? I'm used to it. And I think that I got through it by realizing there's no such thing as writer's block. And I don't believe there's such a thing as writer's block because I had been working for daily newspapers for so long. Like if I didn't turn out copy, I'd get fired. And so I very quickly developed a habit and a routine, which I still do today, of how I get books finished and finished quickly. I want to hear more about the journey to the book that you wrote called If Nuns Ruled the World. Yeah. So this is such a curveball from writing about celebrities. Right? Totally. <laughs> right. Is it though? Is it celebrities and nuns? It's all about power. It's all about power. So I, I was taking a lot of classes in the Islamic Studies Department, and then I was also taking some Catholic history classes and I became friendly with a lot of nuns. Just from doing research or? Just from doing research. I met a couple personally. And the thing I say is like one nun is a gateway drug to another nun. I mean, like one <laughs> nun leads to another nun. They just want to introduce you to everyone. And I, so I wrote my thesis on how nuns were using social media, mostly about how nuns were using Twitter. And it ran the gamut of nuns who were using Twitter to try to reach other young women that they thought might want to become nuns, nuns who were tweeting the rosary, nuns who would tweet every inning of a Pittsburgh Pirates game. And it just kind of opened this like little door into what a life of a nun looked like. In the modern day. 
in a way, it's not a departure from covering celebrities because celebrities are also these like people behind cloisters, like, you know, behind closed doors. And so are nuns in a way. And I wanted to, it was the first time that I really began to realize how much storytelling matters and the importance of telling people's stories in a real and authentic way. It was almost as if no one cared. It was almost as if they'd been written out of history. But if you look back, nuns have been quietly influencing things for the past 2,000 years. Nuns were the first feminists in this country. They started universities. They ran hospitals. But nobody thought about them as feminists because no one really thought about them as women. And the original title was Bad Habit, The Secret Lives of Nuns. <laughs> That's too too good. They didn't like, the nuns didn't like it. And I became so close with them that I didn't want to offend them. Yeah. And eventually, slowly, the book evolved into a much more kind of feminist leaning book about the stories of 10 Catholic nuns who were feminists, who were fighting for things you wouldn't think that nuns would fight for. So nuns fighting for gay rights, nuns fighting for equal rights, nuns fighting for abortion rights. One nun who broke into a nuclear power plant and was arrested and imprisoned. So after that book, you released a couple of novels, mm -hmm. right? So they're novels, but they kind of still are commentary in a way on modern life, Yeah, right? Yeah. So Dating in New York, fitness culture, even the most recent one, Charlotte Walsh likes to win is, is commentary on, you know, the, the life of the female politician these days. But then you have nonfiction books like The Misconception of Nuns, you know, how do you decide what is best told as a novel and as a, you know, a fictional story versus what's best told as nonfiction? Mostly I like to s flip in between fiction and nonfiction. Which is whatever you feel like. Yeah, it's whatever I feel like. It's whatever I'm fascinated by at the time. Yeah. It's very easy to become a lazy fiction writer. It's also very easy to become a lazy nonfiction writer. Yeah. And if you're constantly switching between the two, then you're constantly staying sharp. I, I approach my fiction a lot like I do my nonfiction. So for Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, which is my book about a woman running for a political office, I interviewed more than 100 women who had run for political office or who had run campaigns. And so for all of my fiction, I've always done exhaustive interviews. We could have done Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win as a different kind of book, as a nonfiction book about all of the women running for political office. It would not have reached the audience that it reached because a lot of people picked up Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win because it's also a story about a marriage and it's fiction and it was categorized as a summer beach read. And so a lot of people picked up that book that did not have any political opinions and did not necessarily care about women running for office. Whereas had the book been nonfiction, the only people that would have read that book are the people that care about politics. And so by making it fiction, we reached people who would never have read a book about politics. And that's what a lot of the reader feedback has been, is they're like, you know what, I'm not interested in politics. In fact, I'm burnt out on politics and I'm sick of politics because who isn't these days? But I loved your book. And it made me think about women running for office and the importance of women running for office so thank you. Wow. Is that the case with your previous novels as well that have been sort of commentary? It is. It is. I mean, The Knockoff and Fitness Junkie were both very much packaged as chiclet. And they're written like they have a lighter touch, but they're both pretty seething satires. And I still contend that if a male writer had written those books, they would have been packaged in a much more serious way. And The Knockoff is a satire about tech and ageism. 
but again, I'm a woman, so it got a really shiny, glossy cover, and it was a summer beach read. Fitness junkie, the pretty scathing satire of the health and wellness industry. Again, it was a light, funny beach read. Are you saying that you think that if if you weren't a woman, that the, the same book wouldn't have been packaged as a beach read? 100%. Women authors and quote unquote women's subjects are packaged completely different from the way we package male authors. You think that should change? It is changing. I think it's been changing in the past five years since I started writing novels. That soon? Yeah. I mean, it's a big deal. Charlotte Walsh's cover is not pink. This is what, seven books in seven years, right? Yeah, about, about. And that's that's not even counting Marriage Vacation, which I, go, I wrote for the TV show Younger. So oh, you must be exhausted. <laughs> I'm not. I've discovered that I'm very good at writing books. The thing is, after I got over that first book, it's a job and it's a habit. And I write 2,000 words a day and that can take me an hour or six and I just get it done. Any advice for... Oh, I, oh yeah. My best advice, and I give this, give this advice all the time. I gave it a lot when I was living in San Francisco because I would always get approached by like tech bros in San Francisco who were like, I've got a novel in me. I've just got to, you know, quit my job and go move to a cabin in the woods and for like a year and I'll be able to write the great American novel. And I wanted to be like, I wrote my last novel with a newborn sitting on the toilet half the time. Yeah. <laughs> and if you really want to be a novelist, you figure it out. You f- and you're going to write. You don't need a goddamn cabin in the woods. <laughs> yeah, so to fuck like off, disappear bro. from the yeah, world. Oh, you have to disappear from the world? That must be nice. But my advice is if you think that you want to write a novel, great. Set your word count and be like, I'm going to write a thousand words a day and do it for an entire goddamn month. And if you can't do it every day for a month, then you're probably not going to do this. And the thing with writing your first book is you just don't have the muscle right. and you have to build the muscle. I think and that's true for anything. It's true for anything. Exactly. But Again, writing is this profession that anyone thinks they can do. Literally everyone thinks they can be a writer. And it's not true. Recently, you got into the world of podcasting. I did. Now, was this your idea or is this something that was pitched to you to become a podcaster? It was pitched to me to become a podcaster. I love podcasts. I love podcasts. I love audio. I'm an NPR junkie. When my friends were working at the podcasting network, How Stuff Works, and they had me as a guest on their podcast. I think I was nursing at the time. So I was just, I was constantly attached to this like milking machine, both the baby and the breast pump. And I recorded the podcast episode while I was pumping. And I remember being like, well, this this is something that I can do anywhere. (laughs) Um, And I also had so much fun. And so I called them the next day and I'm like, I want to do this. I want to work with you. Like, and they're like, great, because we want to work with you too. And we did. And that's, we developed our first podcast called Committed. And it's the most fun that I've had in journalism in a very, very long time. Because I think that the internet has largely ruined journalism. I think I think we are living in the age of some of the best journalism. There's such incredible long-form journalism out there. But then you could spend just 10 minutes on the internet or on Twitter wading through all of the content shit out there. Yeah. And you're like, wow, we're living in the worst time of journalism. Yeah. And so you think that podcasting is on the good side? Podcasting is on the very best side. Wow. I mean, it is a place where you are telling authentic stories in in long form and people are actually listening. Right. That's the thing. What I've discovered is this is how people want to consume content right now. Yeah. And so if you're putting out a quality podcast, then you're going to develop a really great audience. Yeah. Your book about how to be married. 
I know my agent almost fell off her chair when I told her I was going to write a book called How to Be Married. Were you even married yet? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> I was at a very, very fancy uh, launch party that we had for the knockoff. And then we had a wildly fancy dinner afterwards. And I was sitting in between my editor at Random House and my agent and my new fiance, who I had only met three months earlier. So, yeah. so before that, did you plan on getting married and having a family? Because I, I grew up with parents who hated each other. I didn't know if I wanted to get married. Yeah. But then again, you also kind of buy into the romantic comedy fantasy of like everyone gets married and everyone around me is getting married. And so I should be miserable if I'm not getting married. And I was living this quintessential single girl life in New York City. I'd also dated everyone in New York City. <laughs> so like there was no one left for me to date at that point. I really dated like every asshole wow. in New York City. And they all got married like right after me. Like I was always the last girl before they walked down the aisle. At this point, I was the managing editor of Yahoo Travel, which was great. It was a dream job. Yahoo hired me and to essentially build their travel website and along with a couple other editors. And when they hired me, I was like, this is Yahoo. Like, this is going to last for like three years and then it's going to implode. I was on assignment for Yahoo in the Galapagos. I hadn't dated in a year. And there was this dude there on my boat. We were stuck on a boat in the Galapagos for 10 days with no Wi-Fi, no internet. And that's important. My husband's always like, it's not important. I don't know why you say that when you tell this story. Like, it's important because if we'd had Wi-Fi, I would have gone back to my room every night and worked. But we didn't. So I was forced to play cards with all of these other, like, hooligans on this boat. Who were the other people on the boat? Like Other journalists. Gotcha. Other journalists. A lot of travel bloggers. Yeah. Which I think most travel bloggers are total fucking bullshit. <laughs> um, but there was this guy there, and he he covered sustainability journalism, and he had... He was not my type. He had long hair, long blonde, scraggly hair. He like looks like Neil Young in his druggy years. And he's wearing hiking sandals. And I'm, I was used to dating like asshole investment bankers who like hate me and date strippers on the side. And I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> and by day 10, I, like, I don't know if it was Stockholm syndrome or what, but then I hooked up with him. And um, that's it. Three months later. <laughs> Only three months. You got engaged really fast. We got fast. engaged in three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after this trip, he's like, I want to see you again. And I'm like, that's bullshit, but whatever. Where did he live? He lived in San Francisco. And you lived in New York. I lived in New York. And we got engaged in three months and married in nine. And then I moved to San Francisco wow. from the East Coast after living on the East Coast my entire life. And so I'd been engaged three months. I'm at the book party for the knockoff and I'm, you know, a little tipsy. And I say to my agent and my editor, I'm like, I don't know how to be married. Mm -hmm. it's about, I was about to turn 35 and, you know, a lifelong feminist. And I was also like, I don't know how to live with a person. I don't know how to marry another person and not completely lose myself the way my mother did in her marriage. And they're like, yeah, no one knows how to be married. And I'm like, I'm going to figure it out. And because I had this job that was sending me all over the world, I was like, well, what if I start asking people in other countries how they do it? how they figure it out. And I did. And so I started reporting the book actually in Chile uh, a month before we got married. And then it continues through the entire first year of our marriage, interviewing people in countries all over the world about how do you do this weird thing called marriage? Were there any, what, what, what would you say come to mind quickly as like the, the biggest surprise? Oh, polygamy. Yeah. Really? yeah. 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 So we interviewed a lot of polygamists in, um, Tanzania and, and Kenya, a couple, a few different tribes, actually. And, you know, you hear the word polygamy and you've got all these negative connotations. And 
Like it's so misogynistic. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of terrible things in every kind of institution of marriage. But what I realized is that the women felt like it was a division of labor more than it was anything else. One, one of the things I wanted to figure out was why are so many people unhappily married? Yeah. And there's a lot of reasons that Americans are unhappily married. But one of them is that we've lost this tribal mentality of taking care of each other through our marriage. The actual function of the marriage, The actual right? function of the tribe, having other people to help us take care of our kids, but also having other people to help us take care of our husband. So when you say that, you're talking about not not each other. You're talking about other just other people around you who are having a, like it takes a village it to takes, raise a child. It, well, it takes a village. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to build a healthy marriage. I think, and we no longer have villages. We think that we can. Uh, there's it's this very American notion that your husband is your soulmate, right? And it's total fucking bullshit. Like your husband is not your soulmate. They shouldn't be your best friend. They should be your husband. Yeah. And in other countries, that role is delineated. You have your best friends, you have your parents, you have your sisters, you have your brothers, you have your tennis partner. You do not expect your spouse to be everything. Where do you think that came from in American culture? Movies. They end with the engagement or they end with the wedding and that person solves all of your problems. Well, you don't see what happens after the engagement or no. after the wedding. No. So you write a book about how to be married mm -hmm. kind of as you're figuring out how to be married. As I'm figuring out how to be married. And it was actually great. It was this wonderful exercise because... It forced us to talk about these things yeah. all the time. Right. We spent the first year of our marriage traveling all over the world and culminating in climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. And that's when you found out that Yahoo was no more. And that's when I found out Yahoo was no more. <laughs> so would you say that you two are like really well equipped now to have like a long, healthy, fruitful marriage given all the research oh, that you've done? Oh, no, no. I don't think anyone is well equipped to have a long, fruitful marriage. Is that even I, a thing? I don't think that is a thing. And I think if, if you think that that is true, then you were just lying to yourself. I think marriage is hard work every single day. And that you are reinventing how you are married every single day. So now it's this exploration that led you to start the podcast. Yes. And so the podcast is called Committed. Yes. And you tell stories of those in marriage. When I was talking to How Stuff Works about doing a podcast, it was either nuns or marriage. And I still think I might develop a podcast about nuns. I'm still working on it. For a while, I was working on a TV show concept about nuns. This is fascinating. So I wanted to pitch a couple different TV shows and I had meetings in Hollywood. My meetings in Hollywood are always probably my best stories. <laughs> and they were like, we love it. Bad. And because I, I was like, badass nuns. And yeah. they're like, are they young and hot? <laughs> and I'm like, no, they're super old. Yeah. And then no one would ever call me back. So until I could find a nun show concept with like young, hot nuns, no one wanted to make the TV show with me. And the best thing about How to Be Married wasn't us traveling around the world, but it was the stories that we got from people talking about how they did this thing. Again, because every movie ever ends with the engagement or the wedding and doesn't show a marriage. What does a marriage look like? And so I wanted to tell those stories. And I knew that I wanted certain, certain stories. I really wanted a couple that was separated by prison. And is it just uh, like, what's different about it? Just writing for speaking is different than writing for reading? Well, it's audio. It's audio and you have a captive audience. I think that the best podcasts are about 28 minutes long. And it's how do you keep someone interested in audio for 28 minutes? How are you conveying drama? How are you bringing someone up and someone down and like only using your voice? And I, and I, I use the glaze over test. So like... When I listen to the first cut of an episode that I do, I'll listen to it. And actually, if he has time, I have Nick listen to it with me. And like, if I see his eyes glazing over, or if I see myself grabbing my phone, I stop and make a cut and fix that part of that podcast. 
because you just never want people starting to tune you out. My favorite episode so far of the third season is we're trying to do an episode with two monster truck rally drivers (laughs) who compete against each other and they're married, which I think is great. That's got to be the like the most cathartic thing. (laughs) Right. Well, And that's the thing. Like, how cathartic is it to be able to like smash your husband's truck every night? Didn't do the dishes. All right. I'm winning tonight. (laughs) Yep. Right. I'm going to flip you over. So we're doing that. And then we're also working on getting a bunch of the married presidential candidates in for season three, which may or may not happen. Knock on things. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the TV show? We talk about the TV show. Yeah. 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 We should talk about Charlotte Walsh. We should talk about how Charlotte Walsh came about. I started watching the election. And I was like, you know, and I had written two, two satirical novels and I wanted to write a satirical novel about a woman running for office. Mm. I was like, this is my next subject, you know, and that was the original plan because we all thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so doing a satire of that campaign would have then still been hilarious. And so we pitched the book. The book gets sold. I think we got sold like a week or two before the election. And then the election happens and the entire world changes and the book changes and you realize you can't write a satire anymore because the world has become a satire. So now you're charged with writing an incredibly character driven novel about what it really takes for a woman to run for public office in America today. Wow. In pop culture, every time we see a woman candidate or say a woman CEO, She's always kind of a bitch or a shrew or a punchline. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the show Veep. She's a punchline. You know, on Scandal, his wife is a complete bitch. Yeah. On House of Cards, she's a shrew. Yeah. We never see a powerful, ambitious, likable woman candidate. Yeah. We've even had a couple of women say, I didn't care about politics and now I'm running for office, which is amazing. Wow. So Charlotte Walsh was um, pretty quickly optioned to be a television show about two weeks after it came out um mostly due to a producer named laura lewis she also kind of had this worldview shift after the election where she said it's our fault we're not making movies that show women who are ambitious and women who can lead we need to change that she quit she started her own production agency called rebel and i immediately said yeah i love what you're doing let's figure this out And we did. And now the show is in development for Amazon, which is amazing. And I have a script that I have to read tonight that I'm really excited about taking a look at. (laughs) What would you say is a common misconception about you? People think that I don't sleep. People think that because I write books really quickly and I'm working on so many different projects all the time, they're like, you must not sleep. And I sleep constantly. I have to sleep 10 hours a night or I'm not a functional human being. Um, It's just that when I'm working, I'm super productive and I don't fuck around. I want to talk about your father's condition. Yeah. At some point around college and right after college, we learned that he, he had a certain form of muscular dystrophy that would start to degrade the muscles in his chest, neck, shoulders, and arms. He spent the last eight years of his life nearly incapacitated in my parents' house, though. During most of that time, was there any thought that you might also have that condition? I never thought about it. I obviously knew that it was a genetic condition. At some point, there had been some kind of blood test, and they didn't think that I had it, which is bullshit because there's no blood test. You have to do a genetic test and there's like one lab in the world that does it. And it's in Iowa and it takes forever and it's super expensive. But I just kind of blew it off. I was living my life. I didn't think about it. And I didn't think about it until I thought about having kids. 
But I mean, I do have to preface that by saying my dad was a wildly unhealthy person. Mm -hmm. He smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. And then I wanted to know if I did have the gene, if we could test an embryo. So we did. And I got tested and I had the gene. And I went through this kind of crisis and I wrote about it and how to be married. I actually opened the book and close it with this where I said to Nick, I, you know, you're going to end up pushing me around in a wheelchair at some point and maybe you should just fucking leave. And, you know, it's Nick. So he's like, I'm not leaving. Um, he's like, I'll push you around in a wheelchair. And I'm like, fine. Um, it was all very dramatic. I, mean, I think I made it more dramatic in the book. I mean, it's really trite to say just kind of like live life for every day, but it does make you think about that because it's like, I don't know how much longer I'm going to have a body that's super healthy. And so we're going to do all of these things that I can now do with a really healthy body. So we do. We take a lot of trips. We do a lot of hikes. We hiked the Nepali coast for our baby moon um, when I was five months pregnant last time. And it's not, I mean, I don't wake up every morning. I forget that I, I forget that I have the gene. So you're originally from the Philly area. You spent a lot of time in New York. Yeah. You traveled all over the place, moved to San Francisco. And now I'm back in Philly. What brings you here? Well, I hated San Francisco. San really? Francisco is the worst place to live in the entire world. Oh my world. God, why? It has essentially just been eaten by the tech industry. Tech, yeah, just startups and... Um, startups and assholes and there's no sense of community in the city anymore. I got very sick of people who worked for tech companies who were like, we're making the world better. We're changing the world. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're just in this to make money. And just say you're in it to make money. There's no self-awareness at all in that city. Um, there's also no sar sarcasm. There's no irony. No one got my jokes. And people got really upset when I said the word fuck. So <laughs> doesn't sound like a good place for Joe. <laughs> it was a bad, bad place for Joe Piazza. And I'm from Philly. I love Philly. I think that Philly is an almost perfect city to live in. I genuinely believe that. And my mom was here and my mom is great at taking care of our two-year-old. Mm. And if I learned anything while writing How to Be Married, it's that you need a village and you need a tribe to be able to successfully have a family, have a marriage, and have a thriving career. And so finally, I convinced Nick that we had to move back to Philadelphia. And we did two and a half months ago. How is he liking it so far? He loves it. He loves it. I mean, he like everything that I told him about Philly is true. It is. I think it is one of the kindest cities in America. We were at the coffee shop yesterday and our mailman came up to us in the coffee shop and said, hey, hey, guys, you're going to be home in like 15 minutes because I've got something I don't really want to fold and stick it through the mail slot. So I'd like to just hand it to you. And I'm like, you just stopped us in the coffee shop to tell us that like that. That doesn't that happens in like TV shows. Yeah. And it's great. And I also think that Philly is a place right now where people can still do things and afford to do cool shit. Whereas in San Francisco, you weren't doing anything unless you were raising VC money to do it. And one of the things that we want to do is open a really great bookstore, community space, wine and cheese bar. I mean, essentially like all the things that I love, yeah. like in one place, like, <laughs> oh, wine, cheese, chocolate books, people hanging out. Great. Drag, yeah. drag queen story hour. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I ran the economics of starting a bookstore in San Francisco and I would have had to get pretty much venture capital funding. Like it was insane. And in Philly, we can just do it. Yeah. We oh. can just make it happen. And also people are excited about it. Yeah. Like I would tell people in San Francisco, I was opening a bookstore. They're like, oh, Amazon. Um, mm. And I tell people in Philly and they're like, that's amazing. How can we help? Well, I'll be there. Yeah. I'll be there. <laughs> yeah. Tomorrow. Do you need me to help install the windows? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. 
Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win is available now wherever books are sold and season three of the Committed Podcast drops later this fall. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho and join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. This episode was produced and hosted by me with associate production by Angela Gervasi, Jackson Neal, and Lauren Hunter, editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, artwork by Lauren Carhart, and a very special thanks to Emily Foote Williams. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time.